Hey, we are in the midst of a series called Call and Response. We're in Exodus chapter 2, the passage that he just read. And if you were with us last week, uh, you'll notice that the verses we're reading this morning, verses 16 through 25, are a very natural and obvious continuation of the passage we studied last week. Now, if you were in, a, in that study with us last week, what we saw there is that Moses had, remember, the right heart. He had the right idea, but the wrong execution. He had an absolute compassion and a heart for the suffering of his people. He knew he needed to do something about that. But the way in which he went about it was a selfish way. It was an arrogant way. It was a way that discounted both God's plan, God's timing, God's power. And as a result, he did the wrong thing, excuse me, the right thing the wrong way. He had the right heart, went about it the wrong way. And as a result, he was met with resistance and resentment from the people he was trying to help. He was also met with frustration and anger and bitterness from the Egyptian leaders. They, they put out a, a warrant for his life. He ends up running in fear. He ends up turning inwardly focused. He runs to Midian. The last verse we read last week says he gets to Midian and he sits down by a well. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation in your life where you've blown it, but I'm guessing you probably know what that feels like. That you've probably made mistakes or blundered into a thing or put your foot in your mouth or said something you wish you could take back. I'm guessing that there are probably mistakes you've made where you felt guilt and shame and regret and you felt like you just wanted to disappear, to fade into the carpet, to evaporate off the face of the planet sometimes. In the face of guilt and shame, regret, humiliation, Moses runs, and that's not surprising to us. It's not surprising that he goes to Midian. He wants to get away from the place where they want to kill him. He wants to get away from the place where people would look at him and go, oh, what, are you going to murder me like you did the Egyptian slave driver and bury me in the sand? He wants to get away from the reputation he's earned for himself. He wants to disappear. And sometimes in the face of embarrassment, in the face of shame and guilt, we just want to kind of be erased. We want to fade out. We want to disappear. I remember a time I was with my, my kids. I was with my two older sons. At the time, they're now 16 and 15, but at the time they were like five and three. And uh, we were in Fresno and uh, we were doing some shopping. I needed to buy a new pair of pants. And so I went into Macy's. My wife wasn't with me. Um, so I had the two boys by myself and I looked at some jeans. I picked out some pants I wanted to try on. And then I realized that I had a bit of a conundrum on my hands because uh, normally I wouldn't take the kids with me into the changing room, you know, because it's a little cramped and whatever. But my wife wasn't there. And so if I was going to try on these pants, I had to take them with me. So it was the only option. I couldn't leave them out in the Macy's because they would have caused, they probably would have lit something on fire, to be honest. So I I take the boys into the changing room with me, and that's when I realized my first mistake. Um, This is probably more information than you want to know about me, but I own a pair, one pair of striped underwear, okay? There you go, right? If you're taking notes this morning, write that in the margins. Uh, I own one pair of striped underwear. I happen to be wearing these striped underwear on this particular day. So I get into the changing room. I start to take my pants off and my kids immediately are like, clown underpants. <laughs> clown underpants. Dad's got clown. And I'm like, shh, wah, cut it out. Because it's like other people trying things on. And they're like, dad, can you do any clown tricks in your clown underpants? We really like your clown underpants. Clown underpants, clown underpants. You know, I'm like, Cut it out. So I'm like really quickly trying to get the jeans on just to shut them up, you know. But the jeans I picked are not exactly the right size. And so I'm trying to get them on, but I'm not doing, uh, I'm not being successful. How about that? And my older son's like, those pants don't fit. 
Anybody who has to work that hard to put on pants is not trying the right kind of pants. And I'm like, shut up, shut up. And I can hear people in the other booths like laughing, you know, and I'm like, don't. And so then I'm like, okay, fine. I start taking them off. And then my little guy's like, clown underpants, the clown underpants are back. And I'm like, forget it. We're leaving, right? So I, I put my regular clothes back on and I walk out of the changing room, you know, and I, but I can, and then like there's these other dudes that are like trying on shirts and whatever, and I can see them looking at me out of the corner of their eye, and I know what they're thinking. Clown underpants. And, uh, and so that was it. I was like, that's it. I, in my shame and humiliation, I'm like, we can't, I'm not shopping here today. I'm never coming to this mall again, you know? I just want to get away from there, right? Get away from the mall because of my own regret and shame about the clown underpants, Right? There are moments in our lives that aren't quite that funny. There are moments in life where, like Moses, we've blown it. Did the wrong thing, the wrong way. Alienated ourselves from other people. Created brokenness and shame and regret. And sometimes in those moments, we just want to run. We see Moses here running to get away from his mistake. It says in Exodus chapter 2, verse 16, it says that the priest of Midian had seven daughters, They came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. By the way, um, when it says the shepherds came, that the shepherds, that specific group, the, the way it's written there doesn't mean some shepherds came or some shepherds wandered by, but rather that this was a repetitive thing that happened frequently. When it says the shepherds came and ran them off and and tried to take their water, um, that's because there's a cycle there. There's a cycle of abuse. Moses goes, it says here, the shepherds came, verse 17, and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, where is he? Why have you left the man? I got seven daughters. Bring these dudes home for goodness sakes, right? Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. I want you to see here that even when you try and run away, that in those moments in your lives where you want to fade out and you want to blend in and you'd like to disappear, that even when you try to run away, you cannot run away, I cannot run away from the person that God created me to be. You cannot run away from your purpose. You cannot run away from your created purpose. God created each of us for a reason. We're built from the ground up for a very specific reason, and that is to glorify God and to enjoy a relationship with him that will glorify him, right? He created us as worshipers, and you can run, and you can hide, and you can try and get away, but you cannot run away from God's purpose. I'm guessing that there are some of you in the room this morning who are feeling a lot of frustration. You're feeling frustrated because you're having to sort of fight against the fact that God created you for a purpose. When you try and live your life, to glorify yourself, or to glorify money, or to glorify sex, or to glorify pleasure, or to glorify power, or when you try and live your life to do anything other than the purpose for which your life was created, even if that means you want to take care of yourself by hiding, when you try and use your life for anything other than than its intended purpose, you are always going to feel frustrated, because you can't run from the purposes for which God has created us. Each of us were born into a time and a setting We were born into talents and abilities, passions and experiences that shed light on God's purposes for us. You see, he created each of us uniquely. He created each of us uniquely. We were born into a particular time and a particular place. 
There may be moments in your life where you've looked and said, wow, I really wish I was born into a different family, or I really wish I was born in a different city, or I wish I was whatever. And you can wish and want all you want, but the reality is that God put you where he has you for a reason. And where you are and where you've been has shaped you in a particular way that God intends to use for his glory. And as long as you're wrestling against that, you're going to be frustrated. Moses tries to run. He tries to pretend to be somebody else. But even in the place where he's running, you see the heart that God put in him manifested, don't you? It's kind of interesting that we see him repeating the same patterns, patterns that were instilled in him by the women in his life. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He sits down by a well, and here come these seven girls, and the shepherds, the shepherds show up, and basically they wait until the girls have filled up the water troughs, and then they chase the girls away, and they water their own flocks. And Moses has a what? He has a heart of compassion. He has a heart to protect. He has a heart to come to the aid of the afflicted. We see that same shaping happening in his life. The the shaping that's already occurred is manifesting here. He's not going to sit by and watch these girls oppressed. And so he does something about it. But note that in Midian, he goes about it in, in a more healthy way. So he's learned from his mistakes Right? What it says, he doesn't say that he murders the shepherds. That, that's the old Moses, right? Ah, so Moses, is, <laughs> Moses sees people being jerks. Moses must destroy them, right? No. It says he chases them away. He's using his training, his military training, his prowess. He's, he looks like an Egyptian, it says. He chases the Egyptians away. So that's a better solution already to dealing with oppression than murder. But not only does he chase the shepherds away, then look what it says he does. It says he waters their flocks. He not only rescues them, he humbles himself and serves them. This is a different approach than the guy who jumped down out of the palace and went, you two men should not be fighting. You know, we are brothers. I am Moses. Listen to my voice. It is powerful. Whatever, right? This is a different guy. This is a guy who chases away the shepherds and then says, here, let me water your flocks for you. In fact, he waters their flocks and saves them so much time that they get home and their dad's like, How did you get back here already? If you're a parent, you've probably asked that question before, right? Like, something's fishy. What are you doing here already? And they say, well, this Egyptian came to our rescue and he watered our flocks. He humbled himself. He not only rescued us, but he served us. And the dad's like, I need to meet this guy, right? Why didn't you bring him here? We see that Moses can't run away from who he was created to be. He can't run away. It's the same heart, but applied differently. The same heart, but applied differently. We see chivalry and servanthood. First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four, verse seven says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. First Peter chapter four is saying this. Pay attention to the time in which you live. Pay attention to the place in which you find yourself planted. You might not like it. It might not be the time that you wish you were born in. It might not be the country you wish you were born in. It might not be the neighborhood you wish you lived in. But wherever you're planted, God can use you and plans to use you and has shaped you uniquely to have an influence there for his glory. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he's talking specifically about spiritual gifts and we should be using our spiritual gifts for the glory of God. But listen, we've got lots of gifts. 
Some of us have talents and abilities, things that are just a part of who God has shaped us to be over time because of the families we were born into, because of the places we lived in. I'm not stoked that my parents were divorced when I was 13, but I can tell you that being the son of a single parent has shaped me in particular ways, and God can and will redeem that and use it for his glory. I don't want to be from a single parent family. That's not something I, I asked for. But it's the situation in which I find myself and therefore God can use me. Whatever gift you've been given. It's weird to think about your circumstances as a gift. It's weird to think about trials as a gift. It's weird to think about being in the end times. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore what? Be sober minded and self controlled. Be thinking about the situation and scenario you find yourself in. How? Why? So that God can manifest his glory in and through that unique circumstance. It's important that we don't try and run away from who's God, who God's created us to be, who God shaped us to be, because you can't get away from it. God never forgets his purposes for you, and you can't forget who he's created you to be and what he's created you for, his glory. Second thing I want you to see here, not only we can't run away from who we were created to be, but the second thing I want you to see in this text is that God refines us in the midst of the in-between times. You know, there are seasons in our lives where we're, we're not quite where we want to be. Like we know the job we want to have or we know the kind of person we want to be married to or we know the kind of career we'd like to be in or we, whatever. You, we, we all sort of end up in these seasons in our lives that feel like I'm not quite where I want to be. It's just sort of an in-between time. And the temptation for us in those in-between times is just to sort of check out, right? The temptation for us in those in-between times is just sort of to, to turn it Turn a blind eye to what's going on around us. But listen, God can and will, he does use those in-between times in our lives as essential teachers. There's so much to be learned in the in-between times. There's so much for God to teach us. Just look at the text here. Look at the next verses. Back to Exodus chapter two. It says uh, in verse 20, he said to his daughters, that's Ruel, said to his daughters, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that, we may, that he may eat bread. Moses was content to dwell with the man. He gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. I want you to see that in this time where otherwise he could have just forgotten about Egypt, he could have just turned a blind eye and tried to coast in that in-between time, that God is actually teaching him some really valuable lessons. You know, Midian, by the way, is not like a place on the map. The Midianites were nomadic. So it's interesting that Moses finds himself in a Midianite camp because in that environment, he essentially will learn how to survive in wandering. Now that might not seem significant to you yet, but in a couple of weeks, when we see that the people of Israel are called to be led by a shepherd who understands wandering, you'll go, that was for a reason. He learned how to wander and how to be sustained in the desert by living with the Midianites. He learned how it feels to be an outcast which is something he hadn't known before. Oh, his cousins and his grandparents, his aunts and uncles, they all knew what it was like to be looked down upon and hated and despised. Moses learns that in Midian. He learns what it feels like to be rejected, to have somebody wanting to kill you. He learns that in, Mos- in Midian. He learns what it means to be part of a family. Oh, he'd been part of different kinds of families before, but his education of that is more completed in Midian, right? He knows what it's like to have a birth mother who raises him for a little while and then hands him over to an adoptive mother. He's had sort of a crazy understanding of what family is like, but now he's got a wife. He's got children of his own. 
And his perception of what it means to be part of a family is broadening. God's teaching him that in Midian. He learns how to work hard as a shepherd, which, by the way, was a despised job in Egypt. He learns how to work hard, and it's not, it's not unimportant that he learns how to shepherd. He learns how to be a shepherd. He learns how to work with sheep and how to guide and direct them, and we will see him bring those skills to task as he's trying to lead God's people. That the shepherding skills he learned, he never would have learned in Egypt. God uses this in-between time as a place to continue to teach him. You know, I think sometimes for us, we're in a hurry. In the in-between times, we're in a hurry. We just want to get out of them. We go, God, I want you to, you know, bring me to the next chapter. I want you to, you know, give me the job I want or give me the spouse I want or give me the money I need in the bank. Open this door for me. We want to sort of be the ones who dictate the schedule because we don't like in-between times. We don't like those moments where we're not sure if we're going to get the job or not, where we're not sure if the girl likes us or not, where we're not sure what's going to happen. We don't like the in-between times. But let me ask you this. Do you think God's schedule is better or your schedule is better? I I know in theory, uh, you know, the right thing to say in church is, well, I believe God's schedule is the best one for me. Okay, good, great, good job. Give yourself a star on your chart at home, right? But in practice, when we pray, God, Do this now. Do what I want in my timing and in my schedule. Essentially what we're declaring in practice is a theology that says, I believe I know better how my life should be run and organized than God does. Now I think if I said, how many of you think you know better how your life should be organized and run than God does? I don't think we'd probably get anybody to raise their hands except people who are trying to fool around with me. I don't think any of us really believe or would admit that we believe it, but I think in practice a lot of us think we know best how our lives should be lived. We don't want to live in the in-between times. We want God to do the thing we want him to do right now. But let me say this, the in-between times can be a very valuable and essential teacher if you'll have your eyes open, if you're paying attention, if you remember this God who redeems everything. I love the story in the New Testament where Jesus is on the boat with his disciples. It's just after he feeds the 4,000 people, right? And they get on the boat and uh, Jesus is talking about the yeast of the Pharisees and the disciples all freak out. You know the story? And they're like, did you bring lunch? No, did you bring lunch? I thought you were gonna bring lunch. Nobody brought lunch. Jesus is talking about bread. He's hungry. None of us brought a sandwich. You know, what are we gonna do, right? I think it's in Mark chapter eight. And I, I love it because Jesus looks at his disciples and he goes, are you kidding me? You guys aren't seriously arguing about bread, are you? Because if I remember correctly, I fed fed 4,000 people yesterday, right? Why would we ever have to worry about food again? Do you know who you're with is essentially what he's saying? I think sometimes, like the disciples, we're in circumstances, but we're not paying attention to what they're intended to teach us. The disciples could watch Jesus feed 4,000 people and then the very next day worry about what they were gonna eat. And we could look at that and go, those numbskulls, right? But they just weren't paying attention. They weren't paying attention to what they should have learned through the circumstance they were in. Otherwise, it would have informed them in that next chapter. Listen, you can't run away from who God's created you to be. And even if you failed, this is important, even if you failed, There are consequences to sin. There are consequences to failure. There are all kinds of things. I mean, Moses is living in Midian because he murdered somebody. That's a a temporal consequence to his sin there, right? There are consequences to sin, but listen, failure and sin does not disqualify you from being used by God. 
It does not disqualify you from being used by God. If you've had somebody tell you, oh, you're too bad or you're too wicked or if you've looked into the mirror and said, I'm too far gone, I've made too many mistakes, I'm too broken, you're telling yourself a lie. Anybody who said that to you is lying to you. Your failure and your brokenness does not disqualify you from being used by God, nor does it exempt you from his expectation. Because sometimes we do this thing where we go, well, I'm too much of a mess. I made too many mistakes. I'm, I'm too broken. I'm too sinful. I got too many bad habits. So I, I don't have to pay any attention to what God created me for. It doesn't make any difference. That also is a lie. Your failure and your brokenness, our failure and our sin, it, it doesn't disqualify us from being used by God. And it also doesn't exempt us from God's expectation for his creation. If either of those were true, none of us could be followers of Jesus and used by him. None of us. Because everybody in the room is broken. Everybody in the room has fumbled. Everybody in the room has blown it. We've all screwed up. That's not a disqualifier nor an exemption. You can't run away from who you were created to be. And God can teach you a lot in the in-between time. He wants the in-between time to be a teacher. Will you allow yourself to be taught by it? Will you pay attention to what he might be shaping you for? And the third thing I want you to see is in the last section. Exodus chapter two, verse 23. It says, during those many days... The king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Sometimes we're running from God. Sometimes we're waiting. And God doesn't forget us in either of those. The running, the waiting, But here's the last thing I want us to see in the text this morning. Sometimes we're running. Sometimes we're waiting. Sometimes we're suffering. Sometimes we're suffering. God's people in Egypt had been suffering and enslaved for 400 years. That means not only were they born into slavery and suffering, but their parents were born into slavery and suffering, and their grandparents were born into slavery and suffering, and their great-grandparents were born and lived and died suffering. And knew nothing else. And the people are groaning. The the idea, the word there that's translated groaning or crying out to God, it it can be translated this idea of powerlessness, hopelessness, intense grief, bitter distress, and agony. Listen to me. Some of you in this place this morning are in bitter grief and agony, distress, suffering, and pain. It is no question that humans suffer. We all know that. We, we can see it. You see it on the news. You see it around your own kitchen table. You look into the mirror and you recognize that there is pain. Why? Because we live in a broken place. We live in a place that's populated with broken, selfish people. And there is a day coming, my friends, when Jesus will redeem it all. That he'll restore it all. That he'll wipe every tear away. But in the meantime, there is a brokenness that causes suffering in the lives of people And if you're here this morning and you're suffering, you don't have a question about whether or not suffering exists. We all know it exists. The question isn't, do people suffer? We know they suffer. The question is, does anybody know? Does anybody see me here? I'm hurting and alone and broken and lost. I don't have the answers. And if you're suffering, I want you to take great hope in this text this morning because what it tells us and declares on purpose is that God sees And he hears, and he remembers his covenant, and he knows their suffering intimately. He knows them. 
When it says God remembers, it doesn't mean that like he goes, oh, I forgot, I had some people. Yeah, they're having a rough go. Man, I got so busy bowling with the angels that I just completely slipped my mind. No, it doesn't mean that they awaken God's recollection. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden he, he sort of remembered something he'd forgotten. God doesn't forget. When it says God remembered, it says specifically what? He remembered his covenant. What that means is that he sustains his covenant. The truth of who he is never changes. He sees them. He hears them. He remembers and upholds the truth of who he is. A covenantal God, who, by the way, you can look at Genesis 15, the covenant of God is not dependent upon the people. It's not dependent upon their faithfulness or their obedience or them performing the right religious rituals. God, in Genesis 15, walks through the covenantal pieces alone demonstrating that it doesn't have anything to do with Abraham. The covenant will be upheld and sustained because of the power and the goodness of God and God alone. If you're suffering here this morning, if you feel like nobody sees you and nobody hears you and nobody knows, would you take comfort this morning in knowing that God sees, that God hears, that God knows and he remembers He remembers who he is. We find comfort and peace, not in remembering who we are, right? I think sometimes in the midst of suffering, there are therapists and people that will go, oh, you just gotta remember who you are. You just gotta pick yourself up by your bootstraps and remember who you are. Just find peace in your own identity. How's that working out for you? It doesn't work out very well because we're broken, no, the place we find hope and the place we find peace is not in our ability to sort of, you know, little engine that could our way through difficulty. The place we find peace in the midst of suffering, the place we find hope is not remembering who we are, but remembering who he is. That he keeps his promises, that he sees us and knows us, that he cares, that we are before him, that he sees the affliction of his people. I love what it says in Psalms 34. Psalms 34, 15 says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Hebrews 10, 21 says, and since we have a great priest, that's Jesus, since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. We don't have to waver, not because we have strength in ourselves, but because the God who sees and hears and knows and remembers himself has promised to deliver us. You see, The question is never, do people suffer? The question is, does anybody know? And what he's declaring through passages like this one, what God is saying to us through passages like this one is, I see it, and I hear it, I remember who I am, and I know it. And that brings comfort to us, because if God sees, and if God knows, and if God is good, as we see declared in the Bible, we know he is. If God is a redeemer and a rescuer who loves to deliver his people and show himself strong, If those things are true and he sees and he hears and he knows and he remembers, then we find hope, not in ourselves, but hope that he sees it, that he'll do something about it, that it's part of a plan we don't always see the end of. We don't always see the big picture of what he's doing, but we find hope because he who promised is faithful. We find hope in knowing 
that he's with us, that God never forgets. In your running, you can't run away from who God's created you to be. He doesn't forget. In your waiting, God has things to teach you. There are ways to be instructed in the midst of the waiting. And in your suffering, God never forgets. He sees you and hears you and he's good. And even though you don't see all the angles and you don't understand what he's doing all of the time, we take hope because he who promised is faithful and he sees us. He's with us in it. Our very salvation is dependent upon the fact that God remembers and does not forget. He promised to send a Messiah and he did just that. He sent the Lord Jesus to take the sin of the world upon himself and to die in our place. He shed his blood and rose again in order to extend to us resurrection life. All of that was a result of God's faithfulness. And I guarantee you that there were times where people thought, what's going on here? Does anybody see me? And I guarantee you there are some of you here this morning who've been trying to fade out. You've been trying to blend in. You've been trying to run from God. Or maybe you're frustrated in the waiting. Or maybe you're broken in the suffering. Can I tell you, God has not forgotten you. And more importantly, he's not forgotten himself. The key for us is to not forget who he is. To not forget who he is in the running and the waiting and the suffering. We remember the God we serve. It's funny to end this morning on a note of remembrance because uh, we started the service this morning remembering the sacrifice of our veterans, the sacrifice of those who've given their lives to procure freedom for us, We're going to finish our service or continue our service this morning through remembering the sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ, the giving of those things through the communion table. You know, the Bible teaches us that Jesus was, on the night he he was betrayed, he was sitting with his disciples as he'd done many times, and he takes the bread and he blesses it, he distributes it to them, and then he says something he hadn't said before. He looks at them and he says, this bread, I want you to eat it in remembrance of my body which is being given for you. Now, the guys around the table wouldn't have even known what the heck he was talking about. But he says, as often as you eat it, do it in remembrance of my body that's being given for you. It says in the same way, he took the cup and he blessed it. He handed it to them the cup with wine and he says, this wine represents my blood that's going to be poured out in order to establish a new covenant between you and my father. And as often as you drink it, he says, do so in remembrance of me. And his disciples celebrated in remembrance of things they didn't even fully understand and they continued to remember him through the body and the blood of Christ observed in communion and that has continued in the disciples of Jesus in a continuous line to this day. An opportunity for us to remember our God who does not forget. We have the opportunity this morning to celebrate communion and the way this works in in our context is this. We've got a communion team that's gonna come in just a second and they're gonna bring these elements to you. And I would ask you in the quietness of this moment to just prepare your heart. This isn't just another bullet point on our service agenda. This is something Jesus himself asked us to do, right? I guarantee you that those disciples never celebrated communion again with dry eyes. Because after the first communion, they, they knew very well what it meant. I ask you to prepare your heart. The Lord God asks you to prepare your heart in the quietness of this moment. The elements will come by and you can take them. We're not going to have you hold them. We're going to ask you to, to, to take those elements as the spirit of God leads you. You can do that where you're at. You can do it with a spouse or a friend or whatever, or you can do it just yourself between you and God. But, but the elements will come, you'll take them and you have the opportunity to, to receive them 
uh, in the timing that is right for you. Just be discerning in that. Prepare your heart. Let's celebrate communion uh, together now.